This is Beth of Pink Foam Artificer on Instagram, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter of Tale of the Manticore covers a span of six weeks as winter ends and turns into spring. Nepul is abuzz with apprehension, hope, and industry as its newly independent people work to siege-proof their town with a number of defenses. The expected attack from Silmoral never comes, however. Eventually, Shrall returns from his reconnaissance mission and reports that Whitestone Castle has been all but abandoned, and things in the capital are bleaker than ever. The situation at the castle is a mystery he cannot explain, and he asks if the companions would be willing to go back and investigate. When the ice on Blue Heron Lake melts away and allows for travel by boat, the PCs set out with their guide, Torum, hoping to reach Silmoral both quickly and clandestinely. They avoid notice by anyone from Black Creek as their boat drifts by, but someone does see them. Night Mother has found them in her scrying pool, now that they are on the move. She decides to make one last attempt to destroy them, and sends her servants to remove the threat to her dark masters. Romola is one of these servants, The other is a new follower of the Night Mother, the warlock, Sero the Mad. I concluded the previous episode with an update to Romola's character sheet, but I put off doing Sero's as well, since he was due to level up in this episode, and it didn't make sense to do it twice. Now that we're here, the time is right to grab some dice and find out how Serodioth the Mad will grow as he reaches level 8. We haven't seen Suro's character sheet since way back in episode 27. At that time, he was a 5th level warlock, really just a magic user for mechanical purposes. He had 11 hit points and a small handful of spells. Let's start by giving him new hit points. He'll get 3d4 of them. Rolling. A 2, a 4, and a 1. His new total then is 18. Not bad. For spells, he already has Sleep, Protection from Good, Web, Detect Good, and fly. I need to add one first, one second, one third, and two fourth level spells. I'll do these... why not? I'll do them on mic. For first level, he gets... Ventriloquism. For second level, it's Levitate. Well, not especially useful for someone who can fly, but that's what the dice say, so there you go. And for third, please don't be fireball. I got a nine. That's... oh hell. It's just as bad. Suro gets Lightning Bolt. And we aren't even done. For fourth level, he gets... An eight and a one. That's... Oh, wow. Polymorph Self and Charm Monster. Interesting. 
It's safe to say that if Suro had the luxury of time to select all his best spells, he would be fairly unstoppable. But as I mentioned in the last episode, neither he nor Romola will be able to properly prepare for the upcoming fight in terms of spell selection. They will also not be able to set an elaborate trap or prepare an ambush for the party. This is for two reasons. Firstly, they need to rush in order to intercept their targets before they reach the relative safety of Somoral. Secondly, they have no way to know, in advance, exactly where they will encounter them. I'll be selecting Suro's payload of spells at random, and this time I will spare you the slog and roll off mic. Okay, I've gone away and I am back with the list. Here's what the Warlock is bringing to the party. At level 1, Sleep and Ventriloquism times 2. At level 2, Web, Detect Good and Levitate. At level 3, Fly and Lightning Bolt. And finally, at level 4, Polymorph Self times 2. It might seem like an odd array, but I think it does make some sense given that Serodioth spent the second half of the winter studying under Night Mother. So, are you sick of level ups? I hope not, because there's yet one more. Shawnee reaches level 8 today as well. This'll only take a minute. Shawnee gets a d4 of new hit points with a plus one bonus for constitution and the usual min out at half. The roll. A 3. That's 4 points and brings her to a new maximum of 30. Not too shabby. Potential stat increases are next. For strength. A 1. Intelligence? I got a 3. Wisdom. This would be a welcome improvement. I have a 2. Dexterity. A 2. Constitution. A 3. I see where this is going. Charisma. Another 2. The dice gods are very stingy lately. Have you noticed? Well, it is what it is. Another no change here news. Shawnee's basic attack bonus remains at plus 2, though I notice it goes through the roof at level 9, if she can make it that far. Lastly, her thief skills advance across the board, and for this level they go up by about 10% each, so that's something, at least. Chapter 57 Part 1 Day 182 Early morning Party status Yellowfly 39 of 39 hit points Shawnee 30 of 30 Jace 37 of 37. Catsbane, 17 of 17. Bazu, 16 of 16. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile times two, Invisibility, Mirror Image, and Haste. Bazu has prayed for Cure Light Wounds times two, Silence 15 foot radius, and Bless. A half-asleep yellowfly watched the willow trees along the bank. They dipped their roots into the newly thawed water gingerly, as though testing the temperature. Behind him, Torum snoozed at the stern, cradling an earthenware jug of brandy in the crook of one arm, as their little bark drifted unnoticed past the garrison town of Westmire, without the need of the oars. Above, early dawn, the color of violets touched the night sky, where a keen-eyed observer might have noticed a dark speck moving about. The tiny shape drifted laterally, then dove, swooped back up, and strafed left before eventually flitting away, disappearing against the growing light of morning. Suro the Mad, using his spell Fly, has discovered the party. He has also noticed the hidden grotto with the choppy, shoal-filled waters beyond, 
and is more than intelligent enough to deduce that his enemy will put to shore there. His strategy will be to move quickly. If he and Romola hurry, they might be able to attack while the companions are disembarking and catch them off balance. I feel I should roll surprise for this encounter, but I don't think it'll be at even odds. The PCs will be surprised on a roll of 1 or 2 on a d6, as normal, but Suro and Romola will only be surprised on a roll of 1. The rationale here is that someone among the companions would have to have spotted Suro in the night sky, which is pretty unlikely. Here come the rolls. The PCs get a 4. Lucky. A surprise round against them would have been disastrous. Now for the second roll. Is it possible that Suro was seen? I've rolled a 2. The dice are telling me that Shawnee looked up just a moment too late to catch the movement of the warlock in the air. All this means that the PCs will be out of their boat and ashore when the fight begins. There's still one more thing to figure out before we get to combat. I need to quickly stat up Torum. As Shrawl's man, he's going to be a competent... what? A fighter or a thief makes sense. I'll roll high-low. High means he's a 4th level fighter. Low will indicate a 5th level thief. Rolling my d6 again? I've got a 6. He's a 4th level fighter. To keep things simple, he'll have a chainmail shirt and no shield, giving him an AC of 14. For weapons, a longsword and light crossbow. Hit points will be... I got a total of 23, considerably above the minute. And I think that's enough prep for now. We are ready to rumble. Better than walking? Wouldn't you agree? Yellowfly grunted by way of reply. Then he grabbed the gunnel on the other side and said, Heave together on three. One. Two. Three. <laughs> together, they dragged the boat up and onto the rocky shore. <sighs> Thanks for the help. We'll leave it. Should be safe enough. Not many people know about this place. It's now impossible to see from the road. We know, said Shawnee, a little tersely. She was grumpy and tired from having stayed up on watch much of the night. She softened her tone deliberately when she continued, asking, Won't we still have a problem getting into Silmore, Torum? We won't go in by the usual methods. Oh, I know another way. Is it safe? Safe? No. These days, the only thing that's safe is to say nothing is safe. But it is secret, and that's worth something. With the boat ashore, the companions set about unloading their gear. When that was done, the six of them trudged up the rough beach, crunching pebbles under their boots. The grotto was beautiful and a fair size, large enough that they could have stowed another four or five boats there if they'd needed to. It was basin-shaped and enclosed by sheer walls of knobby rock. A steep rise of beach led to the only way in or out, a gap in the wall, thirty feet across and almost as high, topped with a natural rock arch. Yellowfly and Torum went first, with Jason Shawnee behind them. Catsbane and Bazu, who took a little longer in arranging their packs, brought up the rear, so it was the two men in front who first saw the pair of cloaked figures that appeared under the arch to block their path. Torum halted when he saw the unarmed man and woman, unsure who they were or what they wanted, but Yellowfly recognized them immediately. In a second, his sword was out. The warlock with the wild red hair spoke. His eyes, as ever, were slivers of ice, and although his voice was mild, they could hear every word. How good to see you again, little flies. This time, I offer no deal. The woman, who had once worn Catsbane's face, and who had bested the companions twice before, now laughed and said, <laughs> You didn't think I'd let you keep that sword, did you? The levity in her voice was gone when she continued, locking eyes first with Shawnee, then Catsbane, and sneering. I'm going to kill you two. Slowly. 
but apparently these two had not come here to talk. Both enemy spellcasters adopted a new posture, raising their hands in the gestures of magic. Between Suro's open palms, tiny forks of blue lightning, the same color as his eyes, arced and sizzled. As for Romola, her form began to blur at the edges. Yellowfly recalled the warlock's web spell from the encounter in the Holloway, and mistaking this for something similar, he called out to his companions to FAN OUT! SPREAD YOURSELVES APART! At the same moment, Bazu fell to his knees in prayer, holding his holy symbol high, while Catsbane raised his hands, preparing to cast a spell of his own. Entering combat. This fight is going to be different from any I have played through before because it involves four spellcasters. I need to add a step that I normally hand wave and say that even before initiative is rolled, casters will have to declare their intention. Disruption of spells is a factor I just can't ignore in this fight, as it could well make the difference between victory and a TPK. In the case of a tied initiative, I'm actually going to re-roll it, as I don't really know how simultaneous action would work concerning so much casting of spells. I also need to be careful not to metagame. Casters will know their spells, but they won't know their target's hit dice or things like that. Oh, one more thing. I haven't forgotten about Night Mother's Gift to Romola. I figured out what it is, but she won't be able to use it until she gets within touching distance of an enemy. I'll explain more when the time comes, but for now, let's just get into it. Round 1. Declarations. Bazu will cast Bless. Catsbane will cast Magic Missile. Suro will cast Lightning Bolt. Romola will cast Blur. Initiative. It goes without saying that this is an extremely important role. Suro and Romola. Oh, a one. Now, all I need to do is not roll another one. If I do, that'll force a re-roll for both sides. Here goes. The party. A three. Yes, I'll take it. Bazu will cast his spell of Bless, and it will affect everyone, awarding a plus one to hit and damage rolls. Caspian can now cast Magic Missile. As a sixth level mage, he gets three missiles now, and he can split them between targets. Of course, he'd be crazy not to do that. Suro will take one, and Romla, who Catsbane especially hates, will take two. Damage is two to seven per missile, plus one for the bless buff. With a wave of his hand, Catsbane peels off three arcane bolts in rapid succession that speed unerringly towards their targets, striking Suro for five points of damage and ruining his spell of lightning bolt. The other two smash into Romola for 12 points. Holy smokes, not only did Catsbane disrupt both of their spells, he did a lot of damage too. And we aren't done either. Shawnee and Torum will fire their missile weapons, while Jace and Yellowfly sacrifice their chance to attack in order to close the distance. Come on! Shawnee will fire upon Romola. She needs a 6 or better on a d20. The roll. A 14 will hit. Her arrow slams into the illusionist for... 4 plus 1 is 5 points of damage. <coughs> Torum looses his crossbow at Suro. He needs a 7 to hit. The roll. An 11 will do it. 5 plus 1 is 6 points of damage to the warlock. <coughs> this is unbelievable. At the end of round 1, both of Nightmother's servants' hit points are down past the halfway mark, and neither can take any further actions this round. I think I need to make a morale check. Given that they have a very specific order from someone they both respect and fear, I'm putting the morale high, and I'm rolling separately. The numbers to beat will be 10 for Suro and 11 for Romola on 2d6. A 9. He certainly thinks about running, but stands his ground. He's not beaten yet. And Romola? A 6. Retreat doesn't even enter her mind, 
She's too furious to consider it. And that is it for round one. Let's continue to round two. Declarations. Bazu will cast Silence, 15-foot radius. Catsbane will cast his second magic missile. Suro will cast Web. Romola will cast Paralyzation. Initiative. Suro and Romola. Ah, a one! Again! This is crazy! The party. A five. This battle is not unfolding the way I expected. I'm not complaining, mind you. I just thought... Well, I'm not sure what I thought it would be like, but it wasn't this. Let's see what happens with this second party initiative. Catsbane's magic missile will be divided as before, with one hitting Suro for... Oh my gosh, eight points of damage. And two more striking Romola for... Wowza, 14 points. These dice are on fire. Catsbane has just slain both of these rival spellcasters, almost single-handedly. By the time Yellowfly and Jace arrive, Serodioth and Romola have been reduced to smoking corpses. I can't believe I'm saying this so soon, but combat is over. Hi, we're the Rolled Standard. We're a tabletop role-playing game actual play podcast that plays and reviews games And over the last three years and 150 episodes, we've played games such as Call of Cthulhu, Numenera, Lycoma, Merc Borg, Pirate Borg, Mothership, Kids on Bikes, Frontier Scum, Merc Borg, Starfinder, Vossen, Mutant Crawl Classics, Monster of the Week, Viking Death Squad, and Merc Borg. New episodes every other Friday, and on the off Fridays, our sister show, Flail to the Face, where we play nothing but Merkborg. Surprise, surprise. So swing through for fun, friends, and chaos. And remember, don't sniff glue. Merkborg. That fight. The more I think about it, the more I'm convinced it basically came down to a coin toss. Whoever won the first initiative got a tremendous advantage, and when the PCs won the second initiative as well, that cinched the deal. I don't see myself as a pessimistic person, but I was mentally preparing myself for the possibility of losing one or even two characters before I played through that combat. Suro and Romola had a few spells that could have made things go very badly in the other direction. I have it in mind that some listeners might be wondering, why didn't Suro cast Protection from Good on himself before the fight? Why didn't Romola do the same with Blur? Good questions, and I do have an answer. As the combat drew closer, I wanted to stress that Suro and Romola would have to rush in order to maximize their chance to surprise their enemies. The odds were in their favor on that surprise roll, too. They just didn't win it. Bad luck for them. Actually, if they had cast those spells in advance, it wouldn't have made any difference. They still would have had their new spells disrupted. One other question that might be in the air. Why didn't Romola at least try to lead with her best spell, Rainbow Pattern? The reason is that it would have affected her ally, given their proximity to one another. All in all, I think Suro and Romola acted correctly. That is to say, in their own best interests. But between the surprise and initiative roles, they just got unlucky three times in a row, and that was good news for the PCs. Chapter 57, Part 2, Day 182, Morning, Party Status. The party status is unchanged. 
Yellowfly stood over the two fallen bodies of their enemies and slowly turned. He mouthed something, but made no sound. Nearby, Bazu lowered his holy symbol, and their leader's voice suddenly became audible mid-sentence. Hunting us all this time, well, I had no idea that they were working together. Nobody was really paying attention. Most of the others were looking in wonderment at Catsbane. The young mage was staring at his own hands, as if trying to decide who they belonged to. Torum was a veteran of a dozen battles, but he had never seen a fight like that before, and he held the whole party in new regard. Do you have many enemies like these? He managed. Nobody replied. Shani replaced an arrow in her quiver and shouldered her bow. Let's get going. I'm suddenly feeling a little exposed out here. Torum looked up to see Shanae walking right past him and towards the bodies of the two defeated spellcasters. Not yet, she said. They might have something we can use. She rifled through the corpse's belongings without ceremony, throwing things aside and pocketing certain items as she went. Anything? asked Yellowfly, standing nearby and bending to help. Not much. They were traveling light. Just a bit of food, a handful of coins. Here, count these. She handed a small stack of gold and silver bits to Yellowfly and went back to rummaging. Oh, here's something. The woman's got a ring. Just copper. Could be valuable, though. With no effort to preserve the dignity of the dead, Shawnee tried to twist the ring off the woman's right hand. It stuck at the knuckle, but Shawnee yanked it free. Ugly little design on it. Looks like a spider. She pulled off one of her gloves and tried to wear the ring, but for some reason struggled to get it on. Her face scrunched up in frustration. Wasn't it a fit? Asked Yellowfly. No, it's not that. It's it's like there's something inside the ring that won't let me put it on. What do you mean inside? It's a ring, isn't it? Yeah, it's a ring, but... She tried again and failed. It's like the air is hard in there. I can't get my finger in. Here, you try. She passed the copper band to Yellowfly, who inspected it with a frown and then tried to slip it over his finger. He encountered the same strange phenomenon. That is strange indeed. It must be some kind of magic. Catsbane, do you want to come look at this? The magic user walked over reluctantly, his eyes never leaving the pair of bodies. Can you make sense of this? Catsbane held out his hand and took the ring from Yellowfly. Wordlessly, and with ease, he slipped it over his right index finger. The ring the PCs have discovered is, of course, the gift that Nightmother gave to Romola to help her take the Silverthorn out of play, for it is the sword, not the companions themselves, that concerns the hag. There's definitely more to this weapon than has been revealed so far, but we'll learn more about that later on. For now, let's have a look at Catsbane's new ring. This is a magical item called the Spiderbite Ring. It's a copper band with a Black Widow design etched into it. It can only be used in close combat, Worn on any finger of the dominant hand, when it touches an enemy, the Spiderbite ring delivers a sharp blast of arcane energy that does 1 to 6 plus 1 points of damage. A successful to-hit roll is required. The ring has a special power, too. On a natural 20, instead of doing critical hit damage, it does only regular damage, but it injects a magical toxin into the victim that forces them to save versus poison or suffer an immediate and painful demise. The Spiderbite Ring was created with the help of demonic powers, and as such, it cannot be used by any character of good alignment. Yellowfly, Shanae, Jace, and Bazu are all good aligned, but Catsbane is actually neutral. It's true that I don't really use alignment in Tale of the Manticore. I rarely have any use for it, to be honest. That said, in the case of something like this, where there's a magical item attuned to a certain alignment, I suppose it does have its place. 
Before we return to the narrative, and although it's barely worth the mention, the PCs found a handful of silver and gold coins in the pockets of Suro and Romola. I'll roll d10 for each. Let's see. They found six gold and nine silver pieces. I'll take him with all. The five of you have names as strange as your enemies. Torum had recovered his flippant attitude now that an hour or so had passed since the strange encounter. Despite posing question after question during this time, he had received little by way of answers. The companions only said that the pair were somehow associated with the Winking Eye and that they had fought each of them on separate occasions. After leaving the grotto, the companions had not made for the West Road that connected Westmire to Silmoral. Torum had instead led them up a steep scarp over an abutment, across a reedy marsh where their boots became sodden and the mud squelched and belched under their steps, then back up a slope of bare rock and into the lee of some ancient willows. He stopped every now and then to get his bearings and to rediscover a path the others could not see. All right, since you'll not tell me any more about those two, perhaps you'll tell me how you came by your unique and interesting names. I'll wager there are rich stories behind them. Yellowfly, why don't you start? What's that? asked Yellowfly, ignoring the question and pointing ahead. Oh, that's just what I've been looking for. You've a keen eye, Mr. Fly. Torum ranged ahead in the direction Yellowfly pointed and stopped at a boulder atop which a small pyramid of stones and shells had been stacked. When the group caught up, Torum explained. This is called the Ishtar. It's a kind of sacred marking the lizard folk use. Lizard folk? ejaculated Shawnee, her hand going automatically over her shoulder to pluck a feathered shaft sprouting from the quiver there. Don't worry, Shawnee, there are no lizard folk anymore. At least not around here. My history's poor, but I know there was once a war between the Kamors and lizardmen. Have you not heard about that? Bazu had heard about it, but Catsbane had studied the records, and he knew the few details that posterity retained. He told them what he could. When the Kamors first came, they found barrows and ruins in the lands they settled. Whitestone Castle was built right atop the largest of those ruins, in fact. My previous master, Carrick, was somewhat obsessed by that ruin, and spent most of his time trying to learn its secrets. These barrows belong to the Lizardfolk, asked Yellowfly. Oh no, I don't think so. But they regarded them as holy sites and made war over them. Both sides wanted whatever was in those ruins, I suppose. Torum pulled at his chin. The wars lasted a few years, and the lizard men were driven back. That's really all I know. So then why is this Ishthar here? What does it signify? It's a marker of sorts. Perhaps it has some magic too. I don't really know much about it. But I'm smart enough not to disturb it. So it's a marker. What does it mark? There's a hidden path just over the lip of the next scarp. You'll be surprised when you see where... Well, I'll just show you. Yellowfly looked first to Shawnee, then to Catsbane, who shrugged. Fine. Lead on, Torum. The guide did so, taking them over a difficult-to-navigate jumble of rocks. When they reached the other side, they were on a visible, new path. It was clearly disused and overgrown, but it was there. It led up and around the cliff face. Below and to their left, Blue Heron Lake glittered and frothed among the sharp rocks that broke the surface. Is that where we're going? asked Shawnee, doubtfully. Up ahead, the path led into a kind of cave-like opening. She felt a heaviness in her heart, remembering the cave in the Brentwood, where they'd lost coal. Ah, it is, said Torum, with a cheery tone that did not match her mood. It doesn't seem like much from here, but you won't believe what it looks like inside. Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. 
If you're enjoying the show and would like to help to support it, there are lots of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on social media. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show in your podcatcher of choice. Every time someone lets me know they like what I'm doing, I feel grateful and inspired. I'd like to read one of your kind reviews right now. This one was posted on Apple Podcasts by KRReed88. KRReed88 writes, I've never been into D&D, never even considered it. Someone recommended this podcast to me on Reddit, and I put it off thinking it wouldn't be my thing. Out of boredom, at work, while waiting for new episodes from my normal podcasts, I decided to check it out. I was instantly hooked, binged everything, and got caught up tonight. Even considering getting into D&D if I can find a group with an open spot willing to teach. To the author, please keep going. I'm far too hooked to turn back. Much appreciated, K.R. Reed 88 And my thanks also to whoever recommended the show on Reddit. I'm thrilled to think that you're drawn to starting up with D&D after listening to the show. If I can make a recommendation, try to find a live table group. Online is fine, it's better than no game, but there's no beating having friends around the table with dice and pencils and a pile of snacks a foot high. My thanks are also due to this episode's excellent voice talent. Returning as Torum, we've got Ben from Pink Hawk, the Shadowrun actual play. Also returning to play the villainous Suro and Romola are Blythe from the Must Listen Grognard Files and Yasmin from the Dungeons & Dragons Podcast UK. Rounding out this episode's cast is regular Kai Allen. Kai Allen plays Catsbane, as always. Thanks to Ben, Blythe, Yasmin, and Kai Allen for their participation. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on X or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. If you like, you can send me an email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like art, maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. It's the story where chaos rolls. Come with us, dear viewers, on a journey full of horror, humor, and mystery to the Regency village of Bledlow, where three young ladies are about to discover nothing is quite as they believed. You can follow along on YouTube and Twitch every other week, if they survive. My mother likes to be sure that we are always very presentable. In Kotalia. In underwear. <laughs> if you want to talk about somebody's silly hat, I mean, Edwin's right next to you. I do miss you terribly when you go away. I, you know, I'll be home soon. I promise. This is quite disturbing. Why would he have such unholy books? Have you come for my power? Some sorrow, some sorrow.